when we come to this chapter of the Bible, it feels like we should just stop. Take off our shoes because we are treading on holy ground. In fact, if there was a Bible chapter hall of fame, this one would be in it for sure. When we talk about Acts chapter 2, some of you might picture the Holy Spirit falling on the disciples in the upper room. Luke tells it starting in verse 1. He says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven like a sound of mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It's a scene full of power. It's a scene full of mystery. And I always wonder what I would have thought if I was in the crowd that day. What would you have done? Seeing these people speaking in all these tongues, would you have pictured them like most of the crowd did as just a bunch of drunk individuals? Or would you have actually believed? Some of us, when we hear Acts chapter 2, think of the first gospel sermon. We think of Peter boldly standing up in front of those hostile crowds and proclaiming the truth in a way that it had never been heard before. We picture Peter as this Billy Graham type or David Platt type figure who packs stadiums, who packs auditoriums, and when he reaches the conclusion of his sermon, he offers the invitation and the people just start rushing down the aisles towards the water. Some of us, when we hear Acts chapter 2, we think of the number 3,000. Can you actually imagine 3,000 people responding to the invitation this morning? And who is going to stay for all of those baptisms? It's a rich and powerful text. Some of us, when we hear Acts chapter 2, we think just about baptism. As a friend of mine, we had a conversation recently, and he was joking about this. He said, the rest of the Christian world can have John 3.16 but we have Acts 2.38. The rich and powerful text that speaks just as powerfully today as it did then. When we hear Acts chapter 2, we think of very familiar things. It is our history. It's our heritage. And it's our identity. And yet, when we hear this familiar text, I wonder if perhaps we have not allowed this story to shape us, to shape, to shape the church as completely as possible. I want you to think about this question. Is the church good for the world? Is the church good for the world? Is Christianity actually helping the world to become a better place, or is it only adding to the hate, to the pain, and to the injustice that already exists in the world? This question, is the church good for the world, has been asked at many times and in many ways, and most recently it's been asked by a man named Ross Duthat writer for the New York Times, and this is what he had to say. Here is a seemingly paradox way of American life. On the one hand, there is a broad social science correlation between religious faith and various social goods, health and happiness, upward mobility, social trust, charitable work, and civic participation, yet at the same time, some of the most religious areas of the country, the Bible Belt, The Deep South struggle mightily with poverty, poor health, political corruption, and social disarray. Is the church good for the world or not? What happens when we weigh the good with the bad? 
I believe with my whole heart that the church is the answer of hope for the world because it is the witness to Christ and the power of his work. But some days, I wonder if we are living up to our calling and if we have any favor, any goodwill at all with the world. That doesn't leave us with that one question, but he gives a hopeful answer. He says, just the way that Dr. King challenged the racism of the southern United States in the 60s. The same way Bishop Desmond Tutu fought apartheid in South Africa over the last few decades, the answer to the question isn't to jettison our Christian faith. The answer is to lean more fully into it and allow it to become who we are and what we are at our core. In other words, the answer is not to scrap the church for something else, but the answer is to truly be the body of Christ. But what does it look like? What does the church actually look like when it is behaving as the body of Christ? And I think Luke gives us an insight. He gives us a short little picture at the end of Acts chapter 2 in verses 42 through 47 when he says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who were believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. In this summary of the life of the early church, Luke takes this picture of a growing congregation. It started out as just a small group, 120 in an upper room. After Pentecost, it was 3,000. Just a few chapters later, it grows to 5,000. We see this church growing, but it's not only a community that's growing, but is having an entire effect upon the city of Jerusalem. If the question is asked to Luke, is the church good for the world, he would answer with a resounding yes. Luke reports that the church was not only praising God and growing in their relationship and reconciliation with him, but that they were having favor with all of the people of Jerusalem. These Christians just weren't getting along with their neighbors. Luke tells us that those outside the church, those outside of the body were appreciative in giving thanks to God for what they were doing in their lives and in the life of the city. But how were they able to do it? I think Luke gives us three ways in which the early church accomplished this. First, I think he says the early church was able to gain favor with others by embodying the message of the gospel. When Peter Peter finished preaching on Pentecost and was asked by the crowds, what do we have to do to be saved? He answered with this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. But what's amazing about this call to repentance. It's not just the gift of pardon, but it's also the gift of power. You see, here at baptism, sins are forgiven, but the significance of the command is is in the new life that Peter calls this crowd to. They are to repent, but also to reorient their life according to kingdom principles and their new identity in Jesus and in his name. 
Just like Jesus saying to the disciples in his, his ministry, come, follow me. The disciples are now telling the crowds, come, follow us as we follow Christ. I think Lee Camp says it well. He says, being the church means embodying God's intentions for the world as revealed in Christ. Church is not about showing the world how to be religious, but showing the world how it is supposed to be. A world that reflects the intentions of its creator. I believe the early church was that reflection. And we are called to be that embodiment here at Highland. Secondly, and personally, my favorite, the early church was able to gain favor with the community around by eating together. Who loves to eat together? Some would say that the church and eating are inseparable. And I think Jesus would agree. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either coming from eating somewhere, eating, or going somewhere to eat. In fact, Jesus is eating so much and with the wrong people that he's often accused by the religious leaders of being a drunk and a glutton. But the table, the place where he ate, that wasn't just a place for food intake. The table for Jesus was a place of ministry. It was a place of doing kingdom work, and the early church was no different. The meals they shared together were a witness to the power of a transformed community because, you see, a meal is an act of hospitality. It's a means of inviting people into one's home, inviting people into one's life, opening up and being hospitable to them, truly sharing life together. And this early church was a united church. Following in the footsteps of Jesus, there were no boundaries at these meals. As Luke says in Acts 2, all who believed were together and had all things in common. These people were not the same in every way, shape, and form, but there was no distinctions or lines among the believers in the eating of this meal together. But you see, these meals were also powerful because they witnessed to the life of Christ. At the end of his gospel, Luke tells the story of a resurrected Jesus on his way with two disciples to Emmaus. They don't know it's him at first. If you will, follow along in Luke 24, 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as he, Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and then he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road, and while he opened the scriptures to us? And they arose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were gathered together, saying, the Lord has risen indeed. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how Jesus had been known to them in the breaking of bread. See, the place of the table is not just a place where they come and be hospitable to one another, but at the table is where they come to see Jesus revealed to them. You see, just as he broke his body for them, they are now breaking his body, that bread, together. They are witnessing to Christ's sacrifice. Eating together brought favor because it was a witness to a transformed people and because it was a place where Jesus was made known. Finally, the church was able to gain favor with others by enacting the message of the gospel in the community. One of the ways that this was most clearly seen and done was through the selling of possessions and giving to those who have need. But 
You see, some people try to say that this was a little unorthodox, that what, what Luke's describing here is when they became a Christian, they had to sell everything they had, they put it all in a common purse, and they had to give up everything. But that's not what Luke says. He says they sold and gave as there was need. When someone needed food, the church met that need. When someone needed clothes, the church met that need. When someone needed money to pay a doctor, the church met that need. And the only reason they could meet those needs is because they were in relationship with the people who had those needs. It wasn't just a need, but it was a name, someone they knew and had a relationship with and were able to enter into that ministry with them, not only the people in the church, but this spills over into the community and it becomes a witness to God. This church truly reflected the love of God and love of neighbor because they embodied the gospel and enacted it in the lives of those around them. They witnessed to Jesus and the power of his kingdom and they gained favor with the entire city. This morning we get to hear a testimony about the continuing power of God through the embodiment and the enacting of the gospel. David Jordan's here with us this morning. He's the executive director of Agape Child and Family Services. And Agape is one of the ministries that Highland supports through our outreach contribution, and we are pleased to have them here today. David, will you come up? Will you please welcome him as he comes forward? We live. There we go. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Frank, thank you for speaking God's Word in this service. Uh, this is our, our third service to be in this morning, and it just has been a rich morning for us. This is uh, my 19th year as the director at Agape, and uh, I tell you, I so appreciate the church here at Highland. Of all of those 19 years, I've been involved and connected to this body. And I've seen Highland serve and serve the city and come alongside in many different ways, just as Acts 2 would speak. So many of you, some, many of you I don't know, many that I do, who have come alongside and still are in a variety of ways, whether it's through Agape or other ministries. So blessings to you. This morning... Uh, in conjunction with what Frank is talking about and giving skin, if you will, to the very essence of the body of Christ enacting who Jesus is in community. I'll tell you two stories. Many of you may not even know these names here in Memphis. Randy and Tricia Lillard. The Lillards uh, attend Sycamore View Church and are engaged in a huge way in our city. Randy's on our board. Randy and Tricia, for 20 years, cared for over 30 children in their home, foster children. They've adopted two children. Uh, and, and Tricia just living out her heart for the orphan, for fatherless, with fit, in just a range of ways in our community. I just defined who she was. She had cancer for 12 years. And she fought cancer like nobody I had ever seen. Even beyond that fight, it never changed who Tricia was. She, she organized herself. She made herself around the cause of orphans, 
from the fatherless, from foster care, for adoption, even up to her death. Two weeks from today, May 18th, which is actually the same day you're having your special collection, that is the first anniversary of Trisha's death. But death did not define her. Life defined her. And she very much wanted people to be engaged with the cause for orphans, for the fatherless, for our city, for our kids. And so we're doing something in the month of May. We call it Love Like Trisha. Because Trisha looked to our father and said, this is who my father is, so this is who I want to be. And so in the month of May, we are asking people to be engaged in the cause of orphans and for the fatherless. For those in our community, for kids and families who need someone to come alongside. And so every day this month, we were asking people to choose a day, do something relative to the cause. Here's a specific way that you can be involved beyond other things you'd even think about. Cindy Pitts is a member here to Highland. She's on the board for Agape, and she's very aware of foster care and adoption through her own family story. In our county, in our city, there are about 50 children that come into what's called state custody every month. So there are about 50 children or almost two children every day because of abuse, because of neglect, because of a range of things in family situation, they can't stay in their own home. And so they have to come into state custody. I've been in this field for almost 30 years, and I have seen just countless numbers of kids who would come out of their home, which is traumatic in and of itself, for whatever the reasons are, traumatic in and of itself. Those kids would have often a black bag, a garbage bag, with their things, and that's all they had. And so they would go to the state office. And a number of these kids will spend their very first night in the state office because there's not a foster family available to them to go into immediately. So Cindy Pitts here is going to love like Tricia and invite numbers of you here at Highland to be able to give items for those kids that first come into state foster care so that it doesn't have to be quite as cold as that is. And so by providing initial uh, clothing, toiletries, things for those kids, especially when they come into state custody and they have very little to nothing, maybe just the clothes on their back. And so you'll hear more about that in terms of a way to love like Tricia, the church here at Highland. Many of you have been involved with our FIT, our Families in Transition ministry. And this is a second way to love like Tricia. It's a ministry that serves and comes alongside of homeless moms, pregnant moms, parenting moms, and their children, their families. When we began this, and Highland was a part of it in 2001, we were able to serve six families at a time. God has seen fit now that we serve 63 families at a time, providing a home, wrapping around services, and helping them move into their own permanent home, employment, and growing deeper in the name of Jesus. There are about 200 homeless families in our city at any one point in time. So right now, there are about 200 homeless families. God has seen fit that we're serving about a third of those families. And one of our goals is to help end homelessness in our city. Another goal is how can we be about life transformation through this process? Well, I am very blessed and you're very blessed to have some very special people with us today. We have one of our current fit moms, Courtney, and her two beautiful children who are here with us, and Ariel, who works with Agape and does just a phenomenal job. I'm going to ask all them to come up with me. Would you receive them, please? 
Y'all can come right here if you want to. Where's this video? Did you want to put on there? You want to stand? Okay, all right. Everyone, this is Courtney and her two beautiful children. And this is Ariel, who works in our Agape uh, program. She works with FIT and uh, comes alongside of numbers of families in the community. Uh, If you've not done this before, like get up in front of, you know, 200 people and tell your life story, this is not an easy thing to do. And I told Courtney, I said, Highland is a warm place. It's a place, I mean, they're going to be like leaning into you, putting their arms around you, right? Is that right? Okay, all right, all right, all right. Courtney, I'm sorry. (laughs) Courtney uh, has graciously, and she's done this in two other services, and said she is willing to tell her story. She's not been in the FIT program that long. Courtney, would you like just to tell folks, like you've done before, tell folks just kind of what life was like prior to coming into the FIT ministry and kind of where life's at for you right now? Thank you so very much. I first and foremost just want to thank God for this opportunity. I thank you for your listening ear. Before I entered the FIT program, I was involved in a domestic violence marriage. My children and I had left our home on several different occasions just to get away from the violence. Well, this last time when we left, the violence had reached a point that I knew that my children and myself could no longer remain in. When my husband became violent with his temper, I ran to my neighbors to get help. They did come and help me. They called the police, but upon them returning to my home with me, they informed my husband that the police had been called. He then left in the vehicle that had been deemed and determined as mine, which left my children and myself with no vehicle In order to get out of harm's way, we simply left with very medial clothing. I left with the clothing on my back. I did not know where I was going to go. I did not know what I was going to do. However, I knew that I had to get my children and myself out of harm's way. As a high school honor student, as a college graduate, I never thought that I would be in this position. I never ever saw myself being in this position. My oldest daughter, Mariah, and Tamia's my baby girl, she's six. Um, Mariah has special needs, and so as a result of her health and being in and out of the hospital, my husband and I had determined that I would be her home caregiver. As a result, he was the one who worked outside of the home. My husband and I shared a joint account upon my leaving. He closed it, which left my children and I basically with nothing. But we did find hope with the Agape program because through this program as a participant, they've given me a new lease on life. They provided me with the support I needed to move forward. And they've really been an extension of God's loving arm. And I'm very, very grateful and appreciative for each one. The staff is amazing, the executive director, Each staff worker, they're amazing, and they truly are representative of Christ's love, and I'm very appreciative for this program, and Mariah is saying she is as well. Courtney, I continue to be moved by your story and your openness 
to, to tell your story because uh, it really is the body coming alongside. It's not over you. It's not. I mean, it's together walking because we've all had our place. And so I'm, I'm thankful. Is, is there anything else that you would like to say in terms of kind of what, what you anticipate and what you hope for in the future, uh, even how the body comes alongside and really can be helpful to you? I definitely would. The body of Christ has played a tremendous role just in the Agape program. The participants there received so much hope. As I said, when I left my home, I was very, the future for my daughters and I seemed very dark, very bleak. I did not know what we were going to do. I just knew that I had to leave. I knew we had to get to safety, and I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was in a place of hopelessness but through this program through agape i have received hope a new lease on life i know that the future is going to be better and brighter for my girls and i'm looking forward to us just having a better life and i'm so thankful for the body of christ and how you have enabled this program to go forth and i praise god for each one of you and god bless you God is good. Now, sometimes we wonder, does church really make any difference? And when the body of Christ gets out of the seat and engages in relationship back and forth, it's not just a one way. Uh, God does some amazing, mysterious kind of things in a transformative way. So, Courtney, thank you. God bless you. Mm -hmm. So ask the question again, does the church do any good in the world? I think we can answer that with a resounding yes. Our outreach contribution is two weeks from today, and it makes all of our outreach ministry possible. It provides funds for Agape to do great work in the city and earn favor and goodwill with all the people it comes into contact with. It allows Highland to be a church that is mobile and able to reach the entire city of Memphis. And as Chris said last week, it's part of the way that we remember that the church is not for us, but it's for the city and for the world. I ask that you please begin to prayerfully consider your gift towards our $130,000 goal on May 18th, and how also you can personally embody and enact the gospel and the lives of those around you. We are a community, we are a body, and we know there's great need. I call you to act on that in the next few weeks. Let's stand and sing. One heart, one spirit, one voice to praise you. We are the body of Christ. One goal and one vision to see.